0: Well, as we jump back into 1 Corinthians today, as we conclude our look at uh, chapter 6, Paul now turns us in the direction of dealing with sexual immorality. Next week's we'll be considering marriage, singleness, and so forth. Again, one of the beauties of the challenges and beauties of preaching through 1 Corinthians is you uh, speak on topics you might not typically speak on, and it's good for a pastor to be forced to do that. It's good for a this is one of the nice things about preaching through a text. You don't, you know, cherry pick text that you want to preach on. You preach through a book and you follow the flow of, of the author. And Paul is engaging a church, as we've already discussed, that is complicated. <laughs> it's a church that is living in, a, in, a, in an area not unlike New York. Um, cosmopolitan, metropolitan, um, influx of Uh, of people and worldviews and theologies and religions and all kinds of things, a place bustling with money, commerce, and also immorality. And Paul has, Paul loves this church. We've heard that. He speaks to them as his, as to his children. He is a father to them. He even used that word. I speak to you as a father. You have many counselors, but I'm, your father. I, I, I'm I, the one who loves you that way. And so as a father, he has hard things to say. It's the job of the father, to, a job of a parent, to say difficult things to their children, to say things their friends are not going to say to them. But a parent will come and have to challenge, discipline, because the parent loves the child and wants to see them mature into a Thriving adult, and so Paul has been doing this with the Corinthians. in, in the last text that we considered uh, uh, last week, Paul dealt with the issue that there is discord within the body. They're suing one another. Where we're going to, we're going to pagans to settle our problems as believers. When you're going to judge angels one day, you're going to judge the world. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why are you turning to pagans to settle your problems? Why are we not dealing with this in-house and as a family? That's the question Paul asked last week. And then at the end of that, in chastising them for doing this, and rather than coming into the church and dealing with it as a family, Paul then shifted to the immorality that is uh, uh, defining the Corinthian church or that is finding its way into the church. And he had very strong things to say, listing out a whole list of, uh, uh, of manifestations of immorality and then saying, such as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Well, this list now brings us into our text, for Paul now turns his sights directly on the issue of sexual immorality. And so we go there. Let's walk our way through the text. In chapter, excuse me, in verses 12 and 13, Paul enters into this discussion on sexual immorality by what appears to be A quoting of phrases that he's getting back from them or that they are using in Corinth to explain themselves. And you get these phrases early on. So it begins right in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. So this is a phrase that Paul probably had given to them at some point. We're going to hear this come back up in 1 Corinthians. So it's a phrase probably that he had spoken to them, preached to them, maybe even written to them before, speaking about the freedom that we have in Christ. It is a beautiful and wonderful doctrine, that of Christian liberty. We're going to spend a couple sermons on it as as Paul addresses it later in the book. As Christians, you are free. The world is yours to enjoy. As Paul says to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 4, everything God created is good and to be enjoyed by his people. It's all yours. Enjoy it. But he offers that little caveat, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. That is, wisdom may dictate in any given moment that maybe something you're allowed to do may not be the best thing to do. And again, he'll hone in on this in chapters 8 and 10. He's really going to zero in on that because people are using their liberty, the freedom that they have as Christians, in ways that are being very destructive to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul sees that as a huge problem for the life of the church. You heard in our reading today, our New Testament reading, 1 Peter 2, which had a bunch of of resonances with the text we're looking at, particularly the fact that you are the temple of God being built into a holy temple. But also in 1 Peter 2, as Mark read, Peter reminded the church not to use their liberty as a cloak for vice. And that is apparently what's happening here. Paul is sending back to them a line that they're using. Well, Paul, you said all things are lawful for us. All things are maybe not helpful, but lawful, right? So the way we're acting and the way we're behaving, especially sexually in the promiscuity of Corinth, if you said all things are legal, then all things are legal for us as Christians. We don't have anything to worry about. Our our justification is is satisfied. We're, We're pure in Christ. And so therefore, it doesn't matter how we live sexually. So that's where that phrase is coming from, and Paul, I believe here, is reiterating it back to them. Basically, I hear you saying my words back to me, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And then Paul responds, all things are lawful for me, but I, Paul now, will not be brought under the power of any. So you, you, you sense the, the subtlety in the first. There's, that Paul is engaging with them on something they're saying, and he's saying, you're right. I did say that, and it's true. All things are lawful for me. However, I am not going to be caught up. I am not going to be a slave to my passions. I am not going to be brought into submission to anything. And this gets us right at the outset in the introduction of this question to the very phrase I used when thinking about our word of exhortation today. Whose are you? Whose are you? Who? What? Your life. Whose is it? Your body. Whose is it? Paul will introduce himself in many letters. You know, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of of the Lord Jesus Christ, called by him to be an apostle of him, right? So Paul views his life in service to the king, and therefore, even his liberty, whatever liberty he has and privilege of being a child of the king and a servant of the king, he is going to use it all for the glory of God, and he is not going to be brought under submission to any of it. I'm not going to be brought under the power of any. So, what Paul does in in verse twelve is there's a quick jab back, a shot fired back to them as they're using this as a justification for their actions. All things are lawful, Paul. Yes, but I will not be brought into submission to any of them. Remember, and we used uh, this passage, uh, I think even last week in in Philippians chapter four when Paul, dis- or Philippians chapter three when Paul uses different phrases to describe the enemies of the cross of Christ, when he says, you know, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, their their minds are set on earthly things, and then he he throws in this phrase in that list, and their gods are their bellies. Their gods are their bellies. And there is a, there is a, a helpful little demarcation of those whose end is destruction. Their gods are their bellies. That is what they're governed by are their bodily passions in satisfying those. And here the Corinthians are in jeopardy of this sexually. They're governed by their bodily passions and paul is saying no you must bring your bodily passions into submission you must not be ruled by them you must rule them and use them for the glory of god not be ruled by them just giving into them and satisfying them those who do that their end is destruction so the first phrase that paul enters in all things are lawful for me but not all things are helpful. Okay, fine, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Then in verse 13, a second phrase. That is not necessarily Paul's phrase, but most likely a, a sentence that, again, they are offering, and maybe one that Paul had said before, not sure, but one that they are using to justify their action. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. The idea being, and this was very common in the, in not only in the city of Corinth, but in the entire Greek world, this Gnostic idea that, hey, the body is what it is. It's, just, it's, a, it's basically a canister in which my soul resides, and in the end, it's going to be destroyed, and my soul is going to be liberated, and so frankly, what I do with the body doesn't matter food's for the stomach. The stomach's for food. So when the stomach has an urge, you satisfy it. You give it food. And of course, you can see how that rolls over sexually as well. Right? I have, just as I have hunger appetites, I have sexual appetites. And therefore, when the body has an urge, when the body calls for it, you give it. In the end, the body's going to be destroyed anyway. In the end, it's not really bodily things that matter. Bodily, physical life is dirty life. Messy life. It's the life of down below. But what God is interested in is not the body. That's about food. Gross things like digestion. That's not what God... God's not a God who cares about those icky things. God is the God who cares about the pure soul. And so we seek wisdom and we seek virtue spiritually and those kinds of things that orient us toward God. But he doesn't care what we do with our body. The, the, the food is for stomach and the stomach for food. And in the end, it all gets destroyed anyway. So it doesn't matter how we live. And so Paul confronts this phrase as well. Food's for the stomach and the stomach's for food. God will destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Yes, certainly we do have sexual appetites, sexual urges and desires. Those are natural. Paul does not deny the goodness of those things as God has made us. They are, they are just as good as the body's desire for food or for drink. That's not the issue. But it's almost like Paul could respond and say, sure, the, the body is meant for food and food is meant for the body, but the body's not meant for gluttony. Okay, sure, sure, the body is, is meant for sex and sex meant for the body, but the body's not meant for sexual immorality. Again, tying it back to this idea of liberty, there are bounds. There are, We must use all these things. We must use our eating and drinking. You're going to hear this in 1 Corinthians 10. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Whether you have sex or whether you abstain, do all to the glory of God. Paul would those two things here, Paul is just linking them up. Fine. However, we use our bodies, however, we satisfy our bodily desires and appetites, which are given to us by God, we must use them for the glory of God. So, Paul challenges the phrase the body is not for sexual immorality. Your body, and think about the strength of this statement your body is for the Lord. Do you think of your body that way? Your body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. We were meant to be in communion and fellowship with him, body, mind, and soul. That is, the the desires of our heart and the actions of our body, the satisfaction of our body, all of this has been to be in harmony together and in communion with him. That is what you are for. I was just speaking with the freshmen and thinking about this because I gave them a catechism in class and we started with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question number one, and said, there's no more fundamental question or thing you can learn. If all you take from Chapel Field is this one thing, it's sufficient. What is man's chief end? What is the chief end of man? Like If you, if you don't get that right, in some sense, nothing else matters. And this is a question that our society and the world does not get right. And if you don't get this right, everything else breaks. If you don't know what something is for, you will tend to misuse it. If you literally do not know what it's for, you will misuse it. You know, I always use it, especially with the kids. I use the example of the iPhone. If you had no idea what it was for and somebody just tells you, because they do know what it's for, if they just tell you, these here, take mine, use mine while you're here. It's good for everything. This thing does everything. You can't believe these things. The person doesn't know. He's like, okay, it's good for everything. And they go home and they find a nail sticking out of their table. And, you know, they, they say, well, he told me it was good for everything. And they take it and they start using it as a hammer. Of course, they destroy it. No, I didn't mean that. That's not what it's for. It's for pictures and it's for listening to music and it's for making calls and it's for texts and emails and it's for storing information. And so use it for what it's made for and it will be an amazing, incredible tool. Use it for what it's not made for, you break it. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for your body. The same is true for you as a being. And this is what our society doesn't understand. The, even the concept of what you exist for is a question we don't ask because baked down into the, the, the society, soaked into our psyche, is this nihilistic. Nihilistic means there's nothing. This nihilistic, atheistic, meaningless view of the cosmos that we all just think we're navigating our way through our 70, 80 years and then the lights go out and we're not sure what happens. But in the meantime, what it all means is a question we just don't ask. Like what is the telos, the Greek word for purpose? What's the purpose of the thing is a question we just don't ask. So I tell my freshmen, you better get this right. (laughs) You better get this right. Because when you look around at a society which is broken, maybe one reason for the brokenness is the same reason you see that smashed iPhone. And you say, what the heck were you doing hammering a nail with that thing? Yeah. And when we look at societies that are unbelievably broken, when we look at people's lives that are unbelievably broken, Maybe we have to ask, why are you using it for that? Do you have any, have you ever thought about what your life is actually meant for? What is your chief end? Paul here says, the body is for the Lord. The Westminster Divines in the Shorter Catechism says man's chief end, that is his chief purpose. The reason you exist is not to get a good job, not just to get through life happily and healthily, not to have good friends and have a few good times, though those may all be included. But that's not why you exist. You exist, says the Westminster Shorter Catechism, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, which is a beautiful thing to add in there. That to, and, and, and these things are not like this, oh, A and B. No, it's A, I mean B. It's how you glorify God by reflecting his glory and his beauty back to him. You're image bearers, that's what you're meant to be. That's what your life is. You are an image bearing instrument. You bear the image of God, that is, you reflect his glory back to him. And you do that by enjoying and delighting in Him. Yes, you were made to be happy. It's just, you. it's not sex that was supposed to make you happy. It's not food. Now, now God uses food, and God uses sex, and God uses money, and God uses a beautiful, sunny fall day that we've had this week. What glorious weather we've had this week. Yes, God. those are all gifts from the God who loves you, but it's not the beautiful, 70-degree, sunny, dry day that is supposed to be the source of the happiness. You were meant to enjoy God and the beautiful fall day was a gift from him that in loving it you might love and enjoy him. Because you were meant, you were made to look at him and to delight in him and to find your happiness and your meaning and your joy and your sustenance in him. That's why you exist. Get that wrong, get that wrong, and don't be surprised when everything breaks. And in as much as you and I are broken, and let's not act like we're not broken, in as much as you and I are broken, it's because we fail to do that. That's what sin is. Sin is looking away from him and listening to the serpent and seeking to find our satisfaction in something other than him. Even the beautiful gift he gave us of viewing the gift as the end and looking to the beautiful fall day as a source of my happiness. Inasmuch as we do that, be prepared to be broken. This is what Paul's telling the Corinthians. This is just, you bad boys, stop having sex. It's that underneath the sexual immorality is a terrible misunderstanding about who you are and why you are, and whose you are. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will raise us up by his power. You're saying, Corinthians, oh, the food's for the stomach, the stomach's for food, God's going to destroy them all anyway. Yeah, well, he raised up the body of Jesus, and he will raise up your body. God loves your body. Your body is a gift from him. And he will raise it up. He will not destroy it. He will raise it up and renew it and glorify it. Therefore, be on guard as to how you use this gift from him. So Paul turns that statement. On its head. Now, in verses 15 and following, we get a series of do you not know questions. And this harkens back to the rest of the book, but certainly to the earlier part of this chapter, because in the earlier part of this chapter, he gave us three of these do you not know? Do you not know? These are these shaming questions. Like, guys, you know better than this. You ought to know this. So we get this. And now here, Paul is going to give us these two reasons, these rationales. For why we ought to do the command, which is coming down in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Please stop justifying it by saying, well, it's just my body. It's just sex. After all, food's for this. I have urges. What am I supposed to do? Or by saying, hey, everything's lawful for me. You know, I'm I'm, I'm free in Christ. So once we cast those out, hear the command. The command, the exhortation of this text comes in verse 18, and it is stark. Flee sexual immorality. And then we get on the top side of that and the bottom side of that, these two images for why we ought to flee sexual immorality. So let's start up in verse 15. Do you not know, so you should know, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Now, now again, the, the prostitution side of this is, one, it was rampant in, in Corinth, and it also, as I mentioned last week, had to do with the temples. The local temples are represented by male and female harlots and prostitutes, and you go have sex with them, and in having sex with them, not only can you have illicit sex— but you're also uniting yourself to the deity of that temple. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on there. But again, don't get lost in the prostitution side of this. He's talking about sexual immorality in general, and he hones in on the specific area that is happening in Corinth. But notice the rationale. You are part of the body of Christ. So in having sex with that harlot... And having sex outside of the marriage where God has said, do this. This sex within these bounds will represent the union of Christ in his body. Sex within marriage will represent the union of Christ in his church. But if you have sex outside of marriage, you are taking the body of Christ and uniting it with a harlot. (laughs) Okay, we don't generally think like this. This is not, how, this is not how, how we think as Christians or as a society. This is not your own personal little decision. Paul is saying, in your sinning this way, you are joining the body of Christ to a harlot. You are, you are having the body of Christ, if you will, Christ himself, participate in fornication or in adultery or in sexual immorality. Verse 16, or do you not know? I'm sure you do, but let me just inform you if you don't. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot, and let's find not just a harlot, he who is joined to a member of the opposite sex, he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her, for the two, he says, shall become one. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So here's the problem with sexual immorality. Right, You are becoming one flesh, not merely physically, but there is a union of body. And by body here, he does not, again, just mean the two bodies coming together. He means personhood. That in this union, in this sexual union, two persons are coming together but you're already joined in this sense with Christ. And now you are joining in a deep way, one of personhood, with this other that is not ordained by Christ. Do you not know that? He says to the Corinthians. Have you not thought of that? So verse 13, therefore flee, run away. And I love how one commentator put it. It's interesting, he does not say resist sexual immorality. And I hadn't thought about that until I read him. He doesn't say resist sexual immorality. He says, run away. Flee. Flee sexual immorality. And then he says this, every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits commits sexual immorality commits sin against his own body. And you think about that and you say, no, that, Paul, that just can't be true. A lot of sins are against my body. The person who deals with drugs and drug addiction and so forth is sinning against his own body and so forth. But, but this, again, gets to what Paul means by body. He's not talking about, well, this sin is a sin against yourself and your, your physical body. He's talking about your being. That in sexual immorality, in joining yourself to another who is not your spouse, even while we are joined to Christ is a deep sin, he says the only sin, that is against our personhood. The very nature of who we are. It reminds us, brothers and sisters, that what we do with our body matters. Now he turns the image from body to temple. And these are not unrelated terms. When we think of the church, we think of the church as the body of Christ and as we read in in, uh, 1 Peter 2, the temple of God. And Paul is talking about us being the body of Christ here. This is why you, you must be sexually pure because your sex is to be within the bounds of marriage where you have this union of personhood, this commitment of one's life to one another in a way that models the relationship of Christ to his church, that kind of deep personal union, which is one of utter commitment. Jesus Christ gives himself up for the sake of his bride. He does not have a casual relationship with his bride, but he gives his life up for her. Sex is to be within a relationship like that because a sexual union, just like a marital union, is to be a living parable. It's to be an embodied sermon, a picture, an image, bearing glory back to the source of the image, namely Christ and his love for his church. When it's within those bounds, it is a glorious thing. We don't make the mistake as Christians of viewing sex as a bad thing or a dirty thing or a thing we don't talk about. Sex is ordained by God in such a way that we participate with Him in the glory of creation. After all, He could have filled the earth with human beings any way He wanted to. He created man from the dust. Why couldn't He create every man from the dust? Why couldn't just every now and then... Man and wife get a crop of children. They walk out and here's another child coming up from the dust. And you say, honey, we're expecting. And in nine months, the child pops out of the ground. Like, he could have done it that way. Instead, he said, no, man and woman have sex. That is the way I am going to populate the earth. In this deep interpersonal self-giving. In that way, you will participate, image bearers, with me. You will will model and image me as the great creator who gave of himself for the sake of the world. And it will also model in this deep relationship of commitment one with another. It will be a glorious picture of the relationship of my son with his bride. Hence, the image of a body, the two being one flesh. Now to the image of the temple in verse 19. Or do you not know? (laughs) Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Again, do we think of our bodies this way? Do we think of our bodies as temples? The temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. Remember, the temple in the Old Testament was the place where God dwelled in the midst of his people. If you lived in Israel at the time of of Solomon, and you would have asked, where is God? You would have pointed over there to that building. That's where God dwelled in a very unique and specific way. Well, what what is Paul saying about this now? Were you to ask, where does God dwell? The world should be able to point, say, right there. In him, in her. In this group, yes, we are being built up, Paul, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, as living stones into a holy temple. So in the one sense, you are a stone being placed with others into this grand glorious temple. We then are the temple. The church is the temple. And yet, you are little temple stones. Each stone in this temple is a temple, it turns out. Each stone has the Holy Spirit and is being joined together with other stones to be formed into this grand cathedral in which the Holy Spirit dwells. That is the work of Christ through his history. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is the grand work of Christ. And in the meantime, you are the temple. Again, metaphors... Beautiful pictures like this help shape how we govern our lives. Why should we live holy lives? Because you're a temple. That's just because you're called to be a good boy or a good girl. You're to be pure because you're a temple unto the Lord. You are where God dwells in the world. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Don't you know that? You should know that. You should know your chief end. For, here's why you are not your own. Not only were you made, what do you have that you have not received? You were made from the dust of the earth. But you were also bought. He didn't have to buy you. He owned you, but... He also bought you, for you were bought with a price. And here's the therefore, brings us back to the command to flee sexual immorality. Why? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your spirit is God's. Therefore, honor him, love him with your soul. Yes. But guess what? Your body is also God's. And so honor Him with your body. Your life, your body is not your own. You've been bought and purchased with a price. Therefore, glorify God. Your chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And therefore, let us, brothers and sisters, take care as to how we govern our lives. Do not be ruled by your bodily passions whether that's a passion for sex or for food or for Netflix. Watching the pleasure of the eyes or the pleasure of the mouth or of the stomach or of our sex or of whatever else. These are all good things. God gave us eyes. God gave us sexual instinct. God gave us stomachs. God gave us skin that can feel the cool breeze and the warm sun. He gave us ears that can hear beautiful music. But beware, because they can all be turned into idols. They can all be turned into idols. So whether we eat or whether we drink, whether we listen to music, whether we watch Netflix, whether we eat good food, whether we have sex or whether we abstain, our life is not our own, therefore... Let us, with all these things, glorify God. And if, as we'll talk about in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, if we feel in any given thing we cannot and are not glorifying God, whether it's watching Netflix, listening to this music, eating this meal, or having sex, if we can't do it to the glory of God, flee. Flee. Don't try to fight it. Run. Run from it for it will seek to get its claws into you and drag you down and rip your eyes away from God, your creator, and your redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are not our own, for if we were left to our own devices, what a destructive mess we would make of it. But you love us, you've made us, you have gifted us with so many good things. In fact, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. We are co-heirs with him. Everything is ours. Everything is lawful for us in him. Oh, Father, help us then to glorify you with this great privilege. Guard us from subjecting ourselves to the urges and passions of the flesh. But help us to know that we are one with you, that we are the temple of your spirit, that our body is your body, for we are one flesh with you, that we might live lives consistently with that truth, and that we might glorify you in body and in spirit. We confess our weakness in this, and we look to you for help and for strength, and we're happy that you so joyfully give it to us. And we thank you for that in Christ's name.